everyone. So this is episode one of the Scott Stokely podcast. I'm 10 seconds in. I've already started talking about myself in the third person like a professional athlete. So I feel like a jock again. Not really. <laughs> uh, so the reason I'm filming this in the dark, it won't be dark for long, is because I am in Slick Rock, the most famous mountain biking trail in the world probably in Moab, Utah. And I'm shooting this at dawn because I thought it's the, the dawn of a new podcast and, and it's dawn and hey, it's the same word I can use two different ways. And this is probably about as artistic as gonna, this is gonna get. So don't get spoiled thinking it's gonna get real clever in these artsy ways, but I thought this was kind of fun. So uh, yeah, I came out here, we hiked out in the dark, uh, when it gets light, I'm going to pull the camera up. I'm going to show you guys. This is the coolest place in the world. And uh, But I'm, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, on this first episode, about what the podcast is going to be about. I'm going to give you some history, some fun stories from the early days of disc golf or my life. But future episodes aren't going to be, be me uh, just talking at you. <laughs> uh, that, I think that would probably get pretty boring pretty quickly. But for the first one, I just want to give a synopsis of all of this and kind of uh, lay the groundwork. If you're not familiar with me or my history in the sport or my history, which I don't know why most people would be, this will give you a little background on why maybe you find it interesting enough to tune into. So, oh, by the way, wearing pants. Um, I think that's going would have been probably the first comment. Um, I am wearing actually a bathing suit bottom because it's going to be 102 degrees today. It's going to be 95 uh, within probably 30 minutes of the sun coming up. So yeah, I'm probably going to be soaked. <laughs> and, and I am sponsored by Starbucks this first episode. So part of why I wanted to do this podcast is that I had done a podcast. I kind of got on the bandwagon and I did a... Uh, a disc golf history and legends podcast and it was fun there wasn't as much interest as i was hoping there would be not for a podcast that just focused on me talking to my old friends from the early days i thought it was super interesting i certainly enjoy getting to catch up with people but it was pretty pretty niche and i didn't want to do a podcast where i'm following the the pro tour you know, with the modern events, I mean, people like Smashbox and Jomez, I mean, there's, oh God, there's so many people doing a great job of that. I'm not trying to compete with them. I, I don't want to be like anybody else ever. But they got, they got this thing and they got it. Um, but they're, well, they're just doing it well. So I kind of put this on the back burner. But I had the idea I wanted to come out and do this thing. And part of the idea, I'm going to say, well, it probably won't be the most arrogant thing <laughs> you, you hear on this podcast, but it's, it's probably going to be up there. But I have life figured out. It took me 51 years. But I'm happy. I'm truly happy. I'm doing disc golf for a living. I'm free. I have a freedom. I'm everything from my career to how I'm living my life to my relationship, everything is different than, well, than, than mainstream for sure. There's nothing about what I do that's normal, not on purpose, but 
I've always tried to exist outside the box and find my own path. And uh, that's <laughs> for better or worse, right? I mean, that's, it's gone very well. I've had some very high highs, some extremely low lows. I'm going to happily talk about all of those. Uh, so it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's a hodgepodge. But I think that that's where the wisdoms come from. I, if I had just had smooth sailing the whole time, I don't think I would have figured a whole lot out. I would have just been lucky. But I have figured it out. So right now I'm traveling around. Uh, the, the term I've come up for is it's disc golf adventure touring. And what I mean by that is that I'm playing disc golf. I'm teaching disc golf. That's how I'm paying my bills. I don't have a trust fund. By the way, there's lots of bugs out here. So uh, if you see me do that, I'm not losing my mind. But I'm traveling. I'm doing disc golf for a living. But in between that is adventure travel. It's mountain biking, it's rock climbing, it's backcountry camping, it's jeeping, jeep off-road four-wheeling. It's living life for the adventure. But disc golf is at the core of all of it. I mean, number one, it's how I make my living. Number two, it's what I love, it's my connection. I've also found that when I get too far away from disc golf, I start to screw up my life. <laughs> so it, it, it tethers me to a place the people in the sport as much as the sport itself tethers me to a place where I'm stable so my my intention has been to start well I'm sorry I'm going to end my life out on the road disc golfing um, that's not a suicide threat what I mean is I'm going to be on the road I'm going to never land I'm going to be on the road touring until I go bing 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 and my intention is to uh to finish up my life this way. My life started this way in disc golf and it's gonna end in disc golf. So that's where the wisdom comes from, but that's also where the, hopefully the interesting hilarity comes from as well. So uh, I, th this is probably new. I'm new to a lot of people, so many new people in the sport. It's the coolest time in the history of the sport. As screwed up as the world is, the, there's never been a better time to be a disc golfer or to find this sport. So I'm gonna give a quick overview of my wacky life in and out of the sport and uh, most of the podcast isn't going to be me talking about me actually very little of it's going to be me talking about me this is going to be this is my chance to be the the star on this episode one but after that it's going to be the people I interview the lessons I teach about disc golf or other things so so but we're going to start talking about me so you know who I am so I played my first round of disc golf on the world's first disc golf course when there was one disc golf course in the world. When I was seven years old, my dad had died and my mom took me to all the local parks. By the way, I just released my autobiography in January, Scott Stokely Growing Up Disc Golf. A lot of this is in there. Uh, there's a lot more that's not in there that I'll be sharing, but that's you know where, where it all started. And, but the sport didn't catch hold because the park was about seven miles from my house, which when you're seven years old, that's the other end of the world. But I would go there every couple months so I was there at ground zero but yeah, I was on the outside it's important to note because people say that I'm an OG I'm, I'm one of the originals first generation it's absolutely false the sport of frisbee existed before the sport of disc golf uh, people like Ken Westerfield and Jim Kenner and John Kirkland and 
Oh God, I don't want to start just listing people. Victor Malafronte, Tom Monroe. I mean, there's people that have been around in the early days of Frisbee and disc golf was a part of this. And, you know, they had events they held. They used to fill the Rose Bowl up for people to come out and watch a bunch of hippies playing Frisbee. I mean, the, the sport existed before the sport of disc golf, the sport of Frisbee. But the formal birth of the sport of disc golf, even though they had been competing in this game, uh, was uh, 1975 when Ed Hedrick and others, of course, put the world's first disc golf course into the ground at Oak Grove Park in Pasadena, California. Uh, there was a transition between 75 and 76 when they went from poles and to baskets. And the original baskets, I have some friends who still have, were actually, I don't even know what the tools are called, but you take a piece of metal and you take a thing and you bend the metal and you, you construct a basket. You hung 10 sets of chains around the outside. Uh, by the way, if you ever get a chance to putt on a 10 chain basket with a modern putter from 15 feet away, 50% of those putts are bouncing out. I mean, like you had to literally putt like this and the disc was coming down like this and went into the basket. I mean, it was, it was, you know, you know, just like anything else. It was rudimentary. Is that the right word? But that was the birth of the, of the, of the sport. And uh, the, the baskets were made for Frisbees, not golf discs. So they caught reasonably well. Uh, but it was also the first moment when you could definitively say, I completed that hole in X number of strokes. You didn't have to say, I heard it hit, it hit that pole or it, I, I think it got that tree. You know, that it, but it was black and white, right? You completed the hole in three shots. You got a three. Now we can see who scored the best on the course. So that's when the sport was born. And I got to see that. It was really cool, but I wasn't a part of it. I was a little kid. When I was 11, I moved about 300 yards from the course. And at the time I was, of well, I like to say of half a billion kids in the world, I lived closer to the world's first disc golf course than any other kid on planet earth. So I was the luckiest kid in the world. I didn't realize it because I'd also moved to an extremely rich, wealthy, right out of a John Hughes movie, for those of you who were around in the 80s, cliche of the rich kid neighborhood. And it sucked. I hated it. I didn't have friends. I couldn't make friends. I was an outsider. It was a town where, you know, I had, I had a great bike, but I didn't have one of the trendy, expensive bikes the other 11-year-olds had. So it was a joke, and I didn't fit in. And my mom worked like 70 hours a week to, to get me into this nice neighborhood with good schools because back then in LA, if you lived in a bad neighborhood, it was a bad neighborhood. And so I found myself with the only friends I could make, which was the Oak Grove Gophers. That's why I wore my Oak Grove Gopher shirt today. Uh, it was the local Frisbee club at Oak Grove in Pasadena, California. It was the world's first just disc golf club. There have been other Frisbee clubs. I mean, Victor Malafronte just released or had released an awesome book about the Berkeley Frisbee Club, uh, which was, you know, they were pioneers before the disc golf was even a thing. But it was the first disc golf club on a course. Oh, God, it's starting to get light out. It's so gorgeous. And this was a bunch of mostly, there's exceptions, but mostly pot smoking, beer drinking, 
occasionally hallucinating hippies. <laughs> that was the early days of the sport. It was an alternative sport. Back then, if you wanted to play a mainstream sport, you had to look a certain way. You had to dress a certain way. If you played baseball or football, you had to look the part. You had to be a jock. You had to come from the jock culture. But there was tons of athletes out there who, who were skilled and athletic, but they were part of the counterculture. They weren't part of the tradition. And that's where the sport came from. It came from a group of misfits all over the world, but there was more in the US, but it was all over the world who liked playing Frisbee and different misfits like different Frisbee games, like ultimate freestyle, double disc court, and of course, disc golf. That's where the sport started. And it started with a bunch of hippies in the park. And I, I guys, it's not gonna be time to share every single story, you know, cause it's just, it's gonna bounce all over the place. But basically, the way Oak Grove Park was set up is that it was mostly outside of the police jurisdiction of the, of the city it was located in and it was hard to get to. And the local police couldn't police it because it was across the line from the city line where the park is. And basically the geography set it up in a way where not a lot of police came there. And so it became a, a, a party park. People played disc golf where they were drinking and doing drugs. They weren't drinking and doing drugs while they were playing disc golf. I, I'll say it again. There were exceptions for sure. Don't get mad at me. My oldest and dearest friends who weren't part of that culture but the culture of our Oak Grove was that. And there was a whole bunch of adults and me. <laughs> I mean, there was Tyler Roddick, Zoe Sisson. I mean, there were some other juniors, you know, kids of some of the, of the adults there um, that were there at Ground Zero too. I'm not suggesting I was there earlier than them, but I, I lived in the park. I'm like, I, I could walk there. I was at the age where I could walk to the park. They couldn't. And so I grew up being adopted by a bunch of pot smoking, beer drinking hippies. And that was, uh, th that, those were my dads. And they were the best people to this day I've ever known my entire life. They took care of me, they raised me, and that's where I found the sport. And I'm not gonna go into all the little details along the way. I'm trying to give a quick overview, but I wanted to set the groundwork. That's where my, my life started in the sport, like from the beginning. <clears throat> so, a quick jaunt through the next 40 years that got me to this chair right here. <laughs> So I was a, I was a prodigy. I was very good when I was younger. I set the junior world distance record. I won my first pro super tour, which was considered a major back then at age 17 in the open division. I was really good and extremely arrogant and extremely cocky. And I was an, I was an asshole. I was a punk kid who didn't have a clue. I was pissed off at everything. I don't know if it was my dad dying or if it was the fact that I lived in a town where I, I couldn't stand the, the views, the, the racist and homophobic and all these, these the, the culture I was coming out of was just, it was messed up. I mean, where I lived, um, that didn't exist at, at the course, uh, but I was angry and I fell out of disc golf at age like 18-ish and decided I was gonna play poker and decided that poker was better on meth. And, and um, <laughs> at one point wound up, this is all in my book, wound up driving to, to be to, in a stolen car up to Las Vegas to pursue or to start my 
career as a professional poker player at, at, at age 19 at this point because I had a fake ID um, with no money just uh, you know and then there were some savings bonds in the car that we tried to sell and went to jail spent a little time in prison just you know normal kids <laughs> kid stuff um, uh, that was that was it and uh, but I, I figured out because I had left this golf and they, oh there's this golf pull me back oh, 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 oh. oh there you are again and the people in the sport that I looked up to the most, they weren't angry. They were the, they were the culture of this, this hippie culture where they loved people and they loved life and they were happy. They, they could, they, you know, at least I felt like they had figured it out. And I just glommed onto them and, and, and hung onto them. You know, Rick Schaefer and Dan Roddick and John Friedman and Mark Horn and Susie Horn and I mean, Tita and Beth Farish and all, all these these people that, you know, they just, I left, screwed everything up in my life, they welcomed me back. Like, it's what family does, right? And I figured out how to be happy. Well, happy at that stage of my life. It's not like now, but that stage. Next thing I know, I'm in college and I'm playing disc golf again. And I had this moment where I was like, I was on the path you're supposed to be on. It's a series of events in my life where life and the people around me tell you you're supposed to be on a certain path and do things a certain way, whether it be career, relationships, life, kids, you name it. This is what you do. And I had a job at Kinko's that I was put myself through college. And I remember I had, I had a, I had days I had earned because of the hours worked, I had earned, you know, a few days off. And I had asked for a Friday off to go to a tournament. And that was going to be up, um, you know, like two months away or something. And my manager, who seemed like an adult at the time, he was probably 25 or 30, but you know, I was like 20 then, was arguing with me about, well, how are we going to find someone to cover you? I was working graveyards. Like, well, how are we going to find someone to cover you? Oh, my God, you've put us in such a position. And I'm like, but I've earned this. I've earned the days off and, and, and Frisbee's more, you know, is important to me and it's kind of more important than Kinko's and, and he made me feel so awkward and I'm arguing with him and I'm, I mean, I'm practically blowing the guy just to try to get a day off. And I walked and eventually I, I got the day off, but I walked away thinking, what, what, what the hell am I doing? Like I'm sitting here in college and I'm looking to get into a career where in 10 years, I'm going to be doing the exact same thing I just did right now, except I'll be being paid more money. And I just, it didn't hit me immediately, but I, I'm, over time I realized this is ridiculous. This is like, this is no way to live life, to, to be in a position where someone else has control over me. Like he didn't come to me to ask for time off. No one asked for me for time off. No one asked for me who to marry, where to work, where to live. Like, why am I asking permission from another grown man to do anything? Dawned on me that that was insane. And then I said, screw this, I'm, I'm gonna go on tour. And at the time I was only six people had ever gone on tour and there's no way to go on tour. Cause like, well, six people had done it. Clearly there's a way, but we're talking, you sleep in rest areas on people's floors. You're eating bologna and bread if you're lucky. You win a tournament, it costs, you know, well, you first place at a decent sized tournament was like 200 bucks. So you had to win to win $200 at a lot of these tournaments. 
that you drive, you know, you drove like 16 hours to get to, right? I mean, it was like, you, it was scrapping, but you, you're doing disc golf. And to me, as important as that is you're free. Like I was free. And so I, I scheduled this tour and, and then while I was out, I still had it in my mind though that, it, well, it's temporary. I gotta go back and do the adult thing at the end of this. I still had it in my mind that that's like, it sucks, but that's what, that's just what you do. And I remember, I mean, I was telling people on the road, I was like, God, it's just like, I'm just having so much fun. I'm out here free playing Frisbee for a living, you know, merchandising and doing other things, but I'm, I'm making it on the road. I'm winning tournaments and getting by. And I would say to people, God, it just seems crazy. Isn't it weird that you worked five days to take two off? And isn't it weird that you worked 50 weeks to take two weeks off? Like, shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't you work two days to get five days off? And people would just laugh. They, they laughed at me and they, they said, they're like, well, that's just the way it is. But then I started thinking, why? I started questioning that. It's really when I started questioning the way things work for me. And I said, why? Why do I have to work five days to get two off. That doesn't make any sense. And then I said, I'm just going to do disc golf for a living. And I'm going to figure out how to make it work. And I'll, I'll just blow past the next eight years. I was on tour and set world records and won a bunch of world and national titles. Uh, never beat Ken at open worlds. No one did in the nineties, but I finished second to him twice. Um, which I guess that's a small victory because no one else did at that time in the 90s. <laughs> there was a bunch of one-offs and then I finished second twice, so I got the closest. Um, but I won national doubles and world doubles and world distance. I mean, I, I won 17 world national titles. And wound up connecting with Discraft, ended up making a, a solid living. I was the first disc golfer to buy a house playing disc golf. Not from prize money, obviously, but between sponsorships, endorsements, royalties. Um, I had a signature line that was the precursor to the, the KC line, right? Where I was getting money off all these, uh, the disc sales that were attached to my name. And it was like, you know, $40,000 a year, which in 1995 was, or 96 was insane. Like, like no one made, that was just off the royalties. I was also making money running events and doing clinics. I invented the disc golf, touring disc golf clinic and, and then the touring disc golf double series. I was the first person to do all those. Next thing you know, I'm making like a hundred grand a year for a couple years doing disc golf. Like I was making it and it was beautiful and I was happy and I was free and got married. Well, I was married, divorced, but then I got married to an awesome woman and had my daughter Gabby in 2000. And I was getting burnt out in disc golf and you know, I was needed a break and my arm, my body was hurting. I've been traveling for years, but doing this my whole life. So I decided that I was going to retire from disc golf and I just dropped off. I popped in for a couple tournaments without having practiced or anything. Like I wasn't playing leagues. I didn't, I borrowed discs to go to the, you know, like I, when I quit, I quit. I knew when I was out, I was out. And so I, quit disc golf for the second time <laughs> and um, started, I got in early on the internet boom. <clears throat> and uh, let me kind of back up though, something real important. This is important to the, 
what this pod podcast is about. When I was touring, I decided that I wanted to start teaching. So I wrote the first book on disc golf throwing technique. Um, it's out of print because I, I got a bunch of stuff wrong and I don't want it released with stuff in there that's wrong. And I just haven't gotten around to, to rewriting it. It's like 85% good, but if you buy it right now, you wouldn't know what 15% to ignore. <laughs> so um, I don't recommend buying it other than as a novelty. Um, but I released three instructional DVDs, which are the same 85% correct, 15%. What was I thinking? I mean, but I mean, you know, I, was, I literally wrote the book, right? I mean, I had nothing before me to really base it on, but I was, you know, we would, <laughs> me and Chris Falk and some other people would literally like Mike Randolph, Daryl Maldon, we'd watch videos of players and on a VCR and frame it, frame advanced to try to see what people were doing or I'd be writing it down. Like it was, <laughs> it was hard. Um, and I got a lot of it right. I'm proud of what I did. I went to 155 cities, then I went to another 100 and something cities doing clinics, standing up before the clubs. There was no YouTube videos back then. People would drive five, six, seven hours to come to one of my one hour clinics because I had world records and I was successful and there was nothing else out there. There was no YouTube. And you know, other than some articles in the magazines, people that wanted to get better were like, oh shit, this, this guy who's really good is seven hours away. Like I'll, I'll I'll drive there to listen to him talk for an hour. Um, happened all the time. Uh, it was a super, I'm really proud of it. Super proud of it. Loved doing it. Wasn't great at it, but it was the best thing out there for sure. I mean, if I compare it to the teaching I do now, like it's cringy, but compared to it not existing, it was pretty good. So I quit the sport in 2000, 2001, something like that. Uh, when my daughter was born and decided to, uh, well, I wasn't going to get into a cubicle. I've, I've, I was already set. That I got to be free. Like, I can't be tied to anybody. I'm not going to be employed by someone else. Let someone else control my life. And it was, uh, well, they invented this thing. If I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was called, um, what's, that, what's it called? The, in, the in, internet. Internet. So the, this, this internet thing had just been invented. Well, it had been invented a while before, but it was starting to blow up. People were actually starting to get online. Um, they were on 14K modems and then 28K, 56K. Um, by the way, to give you an idea, kids, what a 56K modem um, was like. By the way, remember, we start off as 14. So we're talking about four times as fast as the 56K modem is that a friend would email you like, like this was the early days of internet porn, which was your friend would email you a dirty picture on your 56k modem you would click on it and you would wait four or five minutes for a picture forget about video out of the question for a picture to download and you'd see the top of it and it would show a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more which you know it seems so insane but back then that's what the internet was i mean don't even start like someone wants to argue with you that the internet didn't blow up because of porn they're they're insane that's the porn porn drove the early days of the internet still does but in the early days that was they were the pioneers so anyways that's how slow the internet was but people were getting online because it was the first connection to the outside world this whole thing that we got nowadays with social media like it was like it was brand new you know and i got in on the early days and i started building websites and my earliest venture, some of the earliest, well, I started some disc golf stores, which were early, early. I was a super early adopter. I had two of the earliest stores, which I, if I had kept, I would be balling. And I just, among other mistakes I made, I let them go. 
um, but I got into other areas of the internet. Um, I created from scratch what was eventually became the second most visited sexual education site in the world. And at the time when people were on dial-up and they were mostly in the U.S. at the time, I was getting about 750,000 people a month, unique people per month to my site. And somehow I was giving sex advice. I don't know what the hell I knew at 28 years old, but um, I knew more than some, I guess. And so I was writing articles and advice columns and product reviews. And next thing you know, all these companies are sending us boxes of products to reviews. And I mean, we're, I'm not exaggerating when I say I, I had a wall of the living room that was, you know, four feet high, wall to wall, just boxes of adult novelties being sent. Um, it was an insane life and I made a, just a boatload of money and then I, I sold the site. I, I managed, that's when I got out on time, sold for a ton of money. Um, was extremely comfortable, extremely financially successful um, for a while. <laughs> and I also then, we started moving into the some more of the adult side of the internet, right? I started, uh, I started running uh, webcam sites. I hired a couple thousand webcam models over a couple years. If you, if you like pretty girls, I highly recommend inventing a time machine, going back to 2005 and starting a webcam site. It's ridiculous, but it was exciting and it was fun. And I was young and I had a partner who was into all this and it was great and just had a blast and was a, was a really good dad. And, and was, you know, I ran the, the science fair at the, my kid's school and was like, I, raised it and just my, my kid's brilliant she's she's the best best thing I've ever done and um it was awesome for a while but and I part of this I think was because I was away from my disc golf family this has always been my base I'll, I'll keep coming back to it but the internet bubble burst and it was no joke it wasn't just the big dot coms that burst everything happened at the same time I wasn't involved in any of the, any of the big dot coms, but what was happening was as the internet was moving international, the whole landscape changed. Basically, you had people who are just as intelligent, just as capable as the people in the US in foreign countries where the cost of living is a tenth of what it is here, which means they can effectively work or be employed for 10% the cost, which means the watermark as far as how much money you can make goes down because you know, you could be doing the same thing I'm doing, making $13,000 a year, and you're balling over there. There's a ton of people that are willing to do it for 13,000 a year, but I had to make 100 grand a year, 150,000 a year, just to have the same life they did, which means I had to be six times as good, or, I mean, it just got tough. And next thing you know, I'll, I wasn't as, I don't know, I guess I wasn't as good as I thought it was at this, <laughs> oh, I, I can't say that, I was, I was good. But I wasn't bulletproof. And next thing you know, I started putting up ideas for these, these internet businesses. I created eight internet businesses from scratch that I created, got profitable, sold, did really, really well. Next thing I know, I started building internet businesses that they weren't making money. They flopped. And next, and then like uh, all of a sudden, like uh, behind on my mortgage payment and, and behind on, I mean, things started getting really tough. And I came to the conclusion as any reasonable person would, that if I just took drugs 
<laughs> where I wouldn't have to sleep at night. I could work 24 hours a day, four days in a row, take a day off and sleep. And I could get a lot more work done and then I could save my house and I could, uh, you know, succeed and I could build the next website. I mean, I'm not going to sell this one because this one's, you know, I'm going to be smart about it. And, and I'm not going to blow through all my money like I had because I was spending money. I wasn't even checking my bank account for half, you know, I don't know, eight years. I, I just spent money like it was water. And uh, so, you know, next thing you know, uh, the businesses weren't working. And apparently, I never got the memo on this, but apparently when you don't sleep and you're doing drugs every night, uh, you don't make good business decisions. I mean, did you guys know this? Did you know that <laughs> doing drugs and not sleeping led to poor thought process? But apparently, <laughs> I laugh now. It's funny now. It was horrific at the time. But anyways, I, I ended up, uh, the drugs all of a sudden became more important than the businesses. So the idea of, you know, my, my very noble purposes that I, I really did have the best intentions when I started doing it, it was a business decision. I was scared that I was going to lose my home and I was scared I needed to work more. I mean, it started off no different than somebody who starts off taking opioids because they're in pain, right? I mean, you, you can start off without the intention of being a drug addict, but and not even the intention of being a partier. I wasn't even a partier at the time. But next thing you know, the drugs became more important than business. And um, I won't cry in this podcast. I'll probably cry in some, but it, it, it also, the drugs became more important than my daughter, my partner, my health, my life, like in every way, like it, they, it, they took over. And I went down a really dark path legal trouble um it had gotten bad like I'll, I'll i'll share all the details later it'll, it'll come up when i do a certain podcast but I, I it got dark super dark so i said you know like what am i gonna do well i i was so far out of disc golf i didn't think anybody remembered me i didn't think anything and i am gonna uh, sidetracked into a story here because this is my favorite disc golf story um, partially because it involves me but I think it's just an amazing story about about disc golf it's the best story about disc golf I've ever heard and it's my story and it's also all true uh, so basically I had been out of disc golf I didn't think anybody remembered me I mean I remembered the sport but I was I didn't think about it I'd lost contact with everybody in the sport I mean I just it just wasn't part of my life. And the relationship had gone down, you know, I mean, I'd already lost my 13 year relationship with the woman that I thought was my soulmate, that was my partner for life, all that. And was it the darkest place I've ever been? I mean, I was basically on the street. I mean, on the street doesn't necessarily mean you sleep on a curb. It could mean you're sleeping in hotels by the week or crashing at people's houses you don't really know but you both use the same drugs so you're you know you have that in common um but it was bad and I was supporting myself in ways I'm not proud of I'm, I'll openly share those I'm just not I'm not holding anything back I'm, I'm, I never have that's why I wrote my book um but it was bad and I at one time realized there was an out in disc golf and I reached back out to Discraft and Discraft immediately was there for me to support me and help me get back on my feet 
Um, well, they didn't know I wasn't on my feet. I didn't tell them. <laughs> um, but I was on the drugs at the time. And I fucked up. I, I shouldn't cuss in this podcast. But I, I screwed it up. And I, I, I messed up the most important relationship I, I ever had in disc golf. With, uh, with Jim Kenner and the, the people at Disc Crafts. Because they were, have never been anything but the best to me. But I, I burned that bridge. Because I was still doing the shit I was doing. I thought I could keep doing the drugs and start this disc golf career again. <laughs> again, this is the way drugs work. You actually think things like this. It's so stupid. But I thought I could. So um, that that didn't work. And then I reached out um, to Dave McCormick at, at Gateway. And Dave McCormick, you know, um, told me they'd get behind me and help me out. But I just didn't know, like, I didn't know what, what which way was up. I felt like the biggest loser in the world. I mean, it kind of was. It's not inaccurate. Uh, but uh, by the way, you can hear some people, the mountain bikers are going to start riding by, but I think that's part of the, why we're going to do this podcast someplace unique, hopefully as much as often as possible. So anyways, I um, was the biggest loser in the entire world. I lost my, my wife to partner of 13 years, not married, but wife to another man. Um, my career, my house foreclosed on my career was over. Like I was just, I was a loser. I mean, I felt like the biggest piece of shit who ever lived at this point in my life. It was the worst. And I can't state this strongly enough that there's not one word of this story that's made up. So I happened to be in downtown Denver and, and I happened to, I, I was starting to talk about doing like trying to get gateway in stores or something to make a few extra bucks. Dave was trying to help me out or something, but I wandered into the disc golf store in Denver called Fly Green. And remember, when I was standing outside that door, I was the biggest loser nobody who ever lived. I was worthless. And I opened the door of the store, and the first thing I see on the wall in front of me was a poster of me with my autograph. Like, what? Like, people, remember like I recognize that I remember that poster I don't think I even thought about it in years but I saw the poster my autograph on it the guy behind the counter looks up like God dude you're Scott Stokely Scott Stokely's here and he runs to the back and I hear him in the back dude Scott Stokely's out front and I'm like what this is you, you guys remember really and and uh, they you know they come right now there were two customers in the store that knew who I was and the guys in the back come out. Next thing I know, I'm signing autographs, and I'm like, they're like, don't don't you guys realize I'm a loser? Like, what are you you're asking me for my autograph? Like, and I'm signing autographs, and the one guy in the store looks at his friend and says, "Dude, 1998 Grateful Disc Championships. We're sitting at CSU. We're on hole three. Okay, you know the campus course." Da, da, da. And he's talking about a hole I threw in the final nine of a tournament. Seven, what, sixteen years before? And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. And it was, and they all got my autograph and I was like, they're like, I was like, I, I, I didn't have any, I didn't even own any golf discs, anything. And they're like, <clears throat> we got it. Like, like I, I just, I basically walked out of the store and I was like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not a loser. I'm, I'm Scott Stokely. No, actually I'm still a loser. <laughs> it, it's not a movie. It didn't happen that quickly. But I had the glimmering feeling of like remembering who I was. And it was a disc golfer. 
And so I was like, I need to get off the drugs. What am I gonna do? Like, I don't have a support system. I don't have anybody. Like, I have every person I know is just, they're on the street fucking doing dope, right? So like, everybody's doing the shit. And I didn't know what I, like, how am I getting, and, and, and I, can I stop using the drugs? No. <laughs> I mean, I could have, I technically, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't quit. I said, what am I going to do? How am I going to get off this shit? <laughs> and so I realized that I had three traffic warrants in three counties around Denver. And when you go to jail on a traffic warrant, you'll spend anywhere from a day to a week in jail waiting for your court date. And then you have to wait till they transfer you to the next jail, which can take a few days later. Then you got to wait for your court date there. And I'd already been to jail a few times on like traffic stuff and kicking drugs in jail is, <laughs> there is nothing like it. <laughs> I, I, I do not recommend kicking drugs in a prison cell, in a jail cell. It's, um, it's probably the worst experience ever. But I was, I was like, how am I going to get off the drugs? And I'm like, well, if I go to jail, I'll get off the drugs. Oh, this is going to suck. <laughs> but I went, um, I went down to the local jail and I said, I'm getting off this shit. And, and I just did as, I stuffed as much drugs into my bloodstream as I could right outside the jail. Threw the rest in the trash can, walked into jail, just high as poop. Said, I have warrants, take me to jail. <laughs> and they did. They were happy to oblige. And they took me to jail and I spent, I don't know, a few weeks in jail and, and it was her it was as horrible as I thought it would be. And I, I kicked the drugs in a cell with other people kicking drugs and eating crap food and sleeping on a concrete floor. You can get a mat maybe if you're lucky. Um, but after about a week, you know, I was eating again and I was starting to get healthier. And then a few weeks later when they let me out, I was no longer physically dependent on the drugs. All I wanted to do was get high, but I wasn't hooked physically. And I was like, okay, now I got to get back into disc golf. And so I go to fly green, talk to the guys, get to know them a little bit, Mike and Aaron and Jordan. I love I love these these guys. They like I, I think they knew my situation. I didn't have to tell them, but they they knew. They, they I think they knew. And the first thing Mike says, he goes, "Dude, you got to start playing again." Well, that's why I was there. And he goes, "I'm like, I don't have any golf discs." It's like, I'm a, it's a disc golf story. He gives me a bag, loads me up with discs, drives me out to the, the league night. I go meet everybody for the first time. I mean, I was horrible. I hadn't played in years, decades. Um, it was awful, but I started playing again and I started playing all the time and I was scrapping. I would work at the shop a little bit, doing what I could to make ends meet, rented a room. There was a basement at a house for $150 a night where they actually were, they hung curtains up to separate cots in the basement of this house where they basically let people like me live. But I had a bed every night. I was feeding myself, just getting by, but I needed more. And I was afraid of getting back on the drugs. And what I, I needed to do was to get back out on tour. I needed to get on tour because that's the only way I was going to get my game back. I didn't know how far I was going to come back, but I was going to get it back. But I also, I desperately needed people to tell me how great I was. And you're not supposed to admit that, but I needed that. I needed people to tell me that I was their hero. I needed to be built up. And so 
I was like, well, how am I going to go on tour? I don't have any money. I don't have nothing. Uh, so I reached out to Barry Schultz, my rival, my biggest rival from the 90s. My biggest rival wasn't Ken because Ken didn't have rivals. Ken just won everything. Barry was my biggest rival. I mean, there was Ron Russell was, was a huge rival, and, and Ron obviously was the first one to beat Ken at Worlds. Um, you know, there was a, there was a Mike Randolph. There, there's a bunch of people. But Barry was my arch nemesis, right? We, we, we went head to head and battled. And so I reached out to Barry. I said, hey, Barry, met. And he's like, hey, wow, where have you been for the past 15 years? <laughs> I, I told him what I was doing. And I said, I need help. Will you help me out? And he says, dude, he says, I live at the country course in North Carolina with Brian McCree. He goes, you're, you're coming to live with me and Brian. He goes, hold on a second. Hey, Brian, Stokely's coming to live with us. And Brian's like, oh, sweet, awesome. And that was that. He goes, just get out here. And I said, Barry, that's awesome. I said, just so you know, I go, I, I don't have any money. He says, I'm not asking you for money. Just get out here, get your game back, get back out on tour. And I said, well, how long can I stay? And he says, his exact words, he goes, as long as you need to. Yeah, I said, I wasn't going to cry. I'm not crying, but I'm damn close. So I was like, oh, my God, that's incredible. And so I, next thing you know, I go to Fly Green. They loan me the money for a bus ticket to get out to North Carolina. And I got, I got uh, a golf bag and a, a backpack with a couple of shirts in it. I mean, it's literally where I was starting off. And uh, I get out to North Carolina, and along the ways, I contact uh, Chuck Connolly, who's running all these North Carolina tournaments, because I got to start playing tournaments again. And I, I called Chuck. He's like, oh, my God, Scott Stokely, it's great to have you back. And I'm like, yeah, I want to play tournaments. I go, I don't have any money, Chuck. <laughs> and Chuck says, oh, well, I'll enter you in every one of these tournaments, and you just keep all the prize money you win. Will that help you out? Yes, Chuck. That'll help me out. Um, and so here I go. I'm going to show up there. Brian McCree and Barry Schultz are taking me in. Chuck's letting me play all the tournaments, paying my entry fees, letting me keep my money. Freaking, I don't have a ride from the bus stop to the country course. So Brian Schweiberger, who comes and picks me up, the first thing he says is, dude, you can't golf in shoes like that. He takes me out, buys me some shoes and some, some golf clothing. And it's like, just like that. Boom, my, my disc golf family took me back in. I mean, they saved my life. I mean, the guys at Discraft started it. Dave McCormick played a huge part. Um, and, you know, he sent me boxes of stuff to sell and stuff. I didn't want to gloss over that to kind of get me, like, help make, for I start making money. I was, he was sending me boxes and boxes of discs, just on my word. Um, and then the Fly Green Disc Golf crew, which I'd never met before, did everything they could to support me. Um, Barry and then Brian McCree and then, I mean, Chuck Connolly said, like, no one said no. Not one person I reached out to said, ah, dude, I got, I can't deal with this right now. Um, uh, you know, the only other person that was there for me, that, you know, the big part was Randy Law, my best friend. Um, but he, he was there throughout the whole thing. He was my, my one constant throughout all this. Was that he, he was always there for me, but he, he even had to take a tough love approach at one point and step away and say, no, you can't stay here. No, you can't. Like, he wasn't helping me by helping me. And he knew that. So, all I got is love. And Frisbee just, boom, right, sucked me back in. And so, 
next thing you know, I'm out on tour, and then, you know, that, you know, I will, again, I'll just gloss over that. That's not the interesting part of it, but I started working with kids with autism. I did it to a large extent. Well, I started to impress someone I was dating with that had a, a son with autism, but I kept doing it because I found value in it. I found more value in people saying, you helped my family and you helped my child than I did with them saying, you're good at throwing a Frisbee. Um, and that has been that has been a huge part of my life. It slowed down a little bit, but um, you know I've gone on to run 270 events in excuse me 270 280 events in 280 cities around the U.S. for kids with special needs, all of them free. Um, contrary to what haters might say, I don't take donations. I don't even accept donations. Um, when people want to donate money, I tell them to donate locally. I now do clinics. Um, when I do a clinic now. I expect the club to, to pay for the clinic, but I don't let them pay me. I tell them they need to make a donation to the local autism directly, and then I'll do a clinic. So I, I'm still using disc golf to, to do things with the autism. But anyway, so that's where I came back to. So I, I take a few years and got my life back together, and everything was great again, except I was poor, <laughs> aside from being super poor. But then I met someone who wanted to have a stable life and take a few years and do the, the adult thing again. And so I went back to something I swore I would never do. I went back and spent four years in a cubicle. But it turns out I'm really good at software sales and you can make a hundred or a couple hundred grand a year. Like, you, like if you're good at software sales, they make it rain. And so I was making a ton of money. And uh, that was fantastic, except that's not who I am. I'm not, I'm not an employee. And as much as I love the company and the people, I mean, I worked for, I mean, these were good companies with good people. I, I don't have a bad word to say about the people I worked with or for. It's just that I'm not a work five days work too off guy. And I'll never be happy doing that. So I said, I'm going to go back out and I'm going to hit the road. And in December I said, I'm hitting the road and I'm going to be homeless for the rest of my life. I'm never landing. And all I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna teach disc golf and, and I, now I do all these, I mean, I do, I got 200 people on a wait list for video private lessons. I, I, I don't even know what to do. I'm, I'm overwhelmed with it. I'm the best teacher in the sport, I think. Um, I've come to realize out here teaching that I, by the way, the reason I said that for a reason, this, this wasn't just to be arrogant. <laughs> um, it's because I realized that I want to be the best teacher in the sport the way I want to be the best player in the sport and the best distance thrower in the sport. It's the same competitive spirit I had as a player that I don't have as an adult because I'm 51 years old now and I can't quite do that. I can't compete obviously with Paul and Eagle and all these kids who are heroes of mine. I love these guys, but I'm not gonna compete with them obviously. So now I'm just as competitive to be the best teacher in the sport. And my competition is, you know, Yeti and Will Shoestrick. I mean, these guys are fantastic teachers. Go, you, go check out Will's online course. It's, it's awesome. If Yeti and, and, and Des do a clinic, go out to see it. These guys are awesome. This, this is not, this is not any way of knocking anybody else. They're so good. Philo does a good job. Nate Sexton does a good job. Just, well, God, I can't even list. There's so many people that do a good job. 
Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm in my mind, I'm competing to be the best again, which is fun. So now I'm out here doing this and uh, I, now I'm doing the adventure thing. And I'm even in now, as I was traveling around, I started exploring the idea of like relationships because I've had some good ones, but they haven't always ended great. You know, a couple times, I mean, I've had two, two of them turn into stalkers, which we'll talk about stalking in some future episodes, you know, where, uh, you know, two relationships where I was the greatest person since sliced bread, well, the entire time I was with them. But as soon as I wronged them by leaving them, I became the devil and the antichrist and hell hath no fury. And what can we do to destroy you because you left me? I mean, it's messed up. Um, but I've also had relationships with some women who are just, it just didn't work, but they were just really good people but I'm still out there single again so now I I'm in a relationship now that has sprung from the idea of the same idea of how I live my life which is I took off and said why does the relationship have to look a certain way right why and again I'll, I'm gonna go down the rabbit hole and share about all this at some point but I live an alternative relationship now with a woman that is outside the mainstream and I've never been happier and it is 100% the right fit for me <clears throat> and I'll never, you know, I wish I had figured this out 30 years ago, but I didn't. So nothing I'm doing now is normal. <laughs> As I travel around and venture around the country in my alternative relationship, you know, you know, with a great woman, we date people, other people together and, and we're just just we just had this my life has just never been better and I got to figure it out I've never been happier and because of all the shitty things as well as the good things I have wisdom to impart and I'm going to impart it but that's not what the podcast is about so we're at the 53 minute mark I'm going to talk briefly about what this podcast is going to be and hopefully we'll cut it off in an hour that was the goal um there's a lot more it's a million funky stories in there like about the history and it's going to be fun but so the podcast is first and foremost going to be, I'm going to entertain myself, period. I'm going to do stuff that I find fun. I'm going to talk about things I find fun. Um, I, I want to interview people. I want most of the podcast to be interviews, but I've decided I'm going to do 50% disc golf interviews and 50% I'm going to talk to interesting people that have nothing to do with disc golf interviews, but will listen to me because I have enough subscribers because of the disc golf thing. So they'll actually want to talk to me. Um, authors and other athletes and I don't know musicians and scientists and and philosophers and just the people that I find interesting I, I've become fascinated with the innocence project for instance I can't wait to talk to someone I've already talked to them about about you know wrong wrongful convictions I just can't wait to um, I started on testosterone a couple years ago been the fountain of youth best thing I could have ever done well I want to talk to there's, there's an author who wrote a book on the benefits of testosterone replacement therapy. I want to talk to him. I'm going to get him on my podcast. And then hopefully you guys will find it interesting or go, hey, this might benefit me too. So I'm going to mix it up. I'm also going to do teaching, a lot of teaching on the podcast because this is what I do. I teach. I'm going to, I'm going to constantly be doing that. Um, I want people to write in. If you have questions of topics, I don't care. Ask me freaking relationship advice. You can ask me about disc golf advice you can ask me about philosophy of anything from religion to to what to do if someone has a problem with drugs I don't know I'm gonna impart but I, I have wisdom now I'm at an age and have lived a life where I do have 
things to share that I think will make people's lives better. And I'm going to do it. It's going to be funny and we're going to laugh the whole time as well. Uh, everything related to disc golf. Disc golf is always going to be at the core of all this, but I'm going to talk about a lot of the history of the sport. I'm going to talk to some of the old timers, but I'm going to talk to the new timers too. I'm not going to pigeon my, pigeonhole myself in this just old timer thing. It's going to be, I'm going to follow whatever, whatever path is fun for me. It's only going to be stuff that's fun for me. I'm just going to have fun. It's hopefully going to be in unique locations as much as possible because if it's not, it means I'm not in a unique location, which is not how I want to live my life. Um, I want to be uh, someplace different every time. I'm going to record the next podcast from Rocky Mountain National Park in a couple days. Um, <clears throat> so it's going to be fun. It's going to be interesting. I hope you guys tune in. I'm not going to just be talking at you the whole time like I did this time. You have my word. Uh, but pick and choose. If you search through it, you're going to see some interesting people I'm going to interview or interesting topics. You're going to find plenty of things that aren't interesting. Don't listen to those. Don't listen to those and think this podcast sucks because it's not something interesting to you because the next one will be. Uh, so that's basically it. Um, I want to show you guys real quick where I am because I can do that. So <clears throat> this is... Slick Rock, and you can't really see it, but these are these rolling hills in the background. Um, it's called Slick Rock because apparently uh, back in the old days when the settlers were trying to cross, they couldn't cross this because the horses, the shoes on the horses would slip on these rock surfaces. I mean, they're steep. A lot of this is really steep. But because of the sand and just erosion the way it's eroded bike tires grip this stuff like glue and so you can ride up and down hills you could never ride on a dirt trail or even on a concrete trail uh like there are there are things where the only way i could walk up because a lot of this is walking your bike especially when you're 51 but a lot of these hills that i wound up walking up it's literally you push the bike up hit the brakes and then pull yourself up and then let go of the brakes, push the bike up, hit the brakes, pull yourself up. But you're pulling yourself up by the grip the tires have on the rocks. That's how much this grips. It's absolutely ridiculous. Um, it's 100 degrees out here. Hey, everyone. I'm now on Patreon. Click the link below. Not only keep the free content coming with tutorials, tips, podcasts, etc., but get a bunch of free stuff like live stream Q&As, copy of my book, voting on topics, behind the scenes, bunch of cool stuff. Click the link down below to join.